Welcome to Police the Beat with me, Dr. Vicky Conway. In this side series to Policed in Ireland, we look at news and issues relating to policing, exploring them in greater detail, bringing you expert perspectives, as well as reflecting ultimately on what this means for those who are policed. Today, I'm speaking to solicitors Shalom Binchy and Michael Finucane. Both have an exceptional track record as criminal defence solicitors, have their own firms and are qualified trainers in the Superlap programme, where we train solicitors on attending interviews in Garda stations. Today we're talking about some legislative proposals on the attendance of lawyers at Garda station interviews. So when a suspect has been detained and is being interviewed about the crime by Garda. Despite what a lot of people think, having your lawyer actually attended that interview is a really recent thing. Shalom, can you maybe tell us about how that came about? Yeah, I'd be happy to, Vicky. So I suppose, um, to put it in context, this was this is a right that lawyers had been seeking and groups like the ICCL had been seeking over a very long number of years and it was seen as a real lacuna in our system. So prior to the right of the solicitor uh, to attend during interviews, a solicitor could advise their clients in person, but they couldn't remain during the interview. So they could advise by phone or in person and then their client had to go off and see how they fared during the interview by themselves. So the, the right came to be in uh, 2014, in May 2014. And it was introduced in a sort of unusual way. I, I think it was, uh, there was a case, Gormley and White, in the Supreme Court earlier that year. And while that case didn't directly deal with the, the right of a solicitor to be present or, um, during interviews, it did comment on it, and there were what are called obiter comments. So there were sort of um, side comments which indicated that the court might, if a suitable case can be for it, uh, grant the, the right of, of access to a solicitor during interviews. And as a result of that, and I suppose as a result of a number of cases in Europe, in the uh, European Court of Human Rights, the DPP gave a direction that as of uh, May 2014, if a person being questioned requested a solicitor to be present during the interviews, then it was permitted. So it sort of happened overnight. There was no warning and there was no preparation and there was no training. And um, it was really a sea change for everybody involved in the interview process. I mean, guards, it must have been a huge change for, for the guardie and it certainly was huge change and challenge for solicitors. And of course, one of the points of it coming about that way, just through this letter from the DPP, is that it's not technically a legal right. It doesn't have that kind of um, standing or status. Um, no, I, I don't Michael, even know what you call it. Sorry, Vicky, but I mean, I, yeah, no, I, mean, I think it. permission to attend. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Or an it, administrative right. I, I, I'm not quite sure what, what you'd term it. Does that fact, Michael, that it, it doesn't have that legal standing and so and there's no re- clear regulation of um, attendance at interviews, does that cause problems when you're actually going into stations? It can do um, because the dynamic within which you're working is representing uh, an arrested person, a suspect, in a police station run by police officers who are investigating a crime and have all the information uh, that you might ultimately want or need in order to be able to represent your client effectively, but get to make 
absolute choices about how much information they reveal, when they reveal it, or in what in what way. Um, solicitors in Irish Garda stations are often confronted with the problem that they are told absolutely nothing uh, beyond the statutory provision justifying your client's arrest and detention uh, and the crime of which they are suspected in the most anodyne legal language possible, but no contextual information. And that makes it extremely difficult to advise uh, a client because even though it's only in the Garda station, you are always acutely conscious of the fact that you're, you're potentially building the defense to a charge from the very moment you walk in the door of the building. Um, supposedly, your client retains a presumption of innocence and is therefore deemed not to be guilty of any crime until proven otherwise. But it's not uncommon to hear the reaction from Gardy that in order to get details of the crime that your client has not yet been proven to have committed, one should go and ask your client because the assumption is that they've got the right person. And this is an extremely dangerous assumption uh, or even a working presumption uh, because it it turns the investigative process into a very one-sided dynamic or a one-side versus the other type of dynamic. And the one thing that you're not supposed to do uh, is to confuse a lawyer, any lawyer, be they a solicitor or an advocate or an attorney or whatever you want to call them in whatever country you're practicing in, uh, with the person that they are representing. You're there to provide legal advice, support and representation to a suspect, and yet you can often find yourself being regarded as if you're complicit in the offense itself. And that's made even more difficult by the fact that there are absolutely no codes, no uh, governing principles uh, that, that have real consequences if the police don't abide by them. Uh, and it puts people in the position where they can essentially deem what they think to be acceptable in the course of a criminal investigation, as opposed to maintaining uh, a neutral approach according to rules that apply equally to everybody. And uh, on, I think until such time as some sort of code or code of practice or statutory instrument or some other binding set of principles is brought in, uh, solicitors, with the best will in the world to my colleagues and even indeed myself, we're flying by the seat of our pants a lot of the time. And I don't think it's really good enough at this point in our development uh, of our laws to say, well, ultimately you'll find out if you were right, if and when the case gets to court at some vague point in the future. Because that affects too many people, not just the suspect. It affects the person who's been the victim of a crime. Uh, it affects society that wants to see its justice system run in a particular way. And it also affects good police officers who are trying to do an effective job uh, and conduct a proper investigation uh, because they too are simply bumbling along as best they can, but often without training or resources to be able to do it properly. And what kind of issues have, I suppose, both of you encountered um, with this kind of absence of regulation? Because there is, like the guards produced... um, court of practice and the law society produce some guidance um but there is no kind of clarity as to which actually takes precedence or 
you know, and there's some contradictions between them and they don't have legal standing, right? So, like, are there particular things that have come up when you're attending that it's really hard to work around because of this lack of regulation? Um, taking notes on a laptop during interview um, uh, is a massive, massive bugbear uh, for for the Guardi. Um, it's it's the issue I was actually asked to leave uh, an interview uh, on because I wanted to use my laptop computer to take notes as opposed to laboriously handwriting it out on page after page of a refill pad. The ironic thing is that the Garda Code of Practice governing the use of electronic devices in, in the interview room while the interview is being recorded not only excludes solicitors from using electronic devices such as laptops during the interview, but also excludes Gardaí from using electronic devices such as laptops during the interview. And anybody who's attended an interview with a client, uh, particularly in the modern age, where uh, closed-circuit TV footage or even recorded uh, footage recorded on a mobile phone forms an important part of the evidence in the case, there's no other way to present that to a person other than to put it on a laptop on the table in the interview room. But by doing so, the guardian are breaking their own rules. However, exceptions will be made for the guardian to use their laptops in that way, almost without having to ask. But as soon as the solicitor asks if they can simply type notes on a laptop, for the very simple reason that you don't want to have to go back and transcribe page after page of handwritten scribbles at a later stage, then you're told very firmly no, and all sorts of hair-raising possibilities will be raised to justify the decision. And it, it, it may seem silly, but if you look at it in the context of someone who's detained on suspicion of a serious crime, that detention can last for days. Different people may be involved in assisting the person from a particular law firm, for example, at different stages. So it makes it impossible to share information between solicitors, make sure everybody's informed, and God forbid that you should want to send any of that information to maybe a barrister to get specialist advice on a particular point of, of evidence. Uh, there's simply no way to do that if you're dealing with handwritten notes. So we are using electronic and digital technology to assist us, and yet we're being frustrated in this. And if you make a complaint, and if, if you become annoyed or if you become obstinate in your insistence that you want to, to work in a way that's efficient and will represent your client properly, you're seen as disruptive and the threat is almost immediately wheeled out. If you don't stop doing this, you will be removed. Uh, despite the fact that there's nothing, you're not doing anything wrong, uh, but the people who are detaining your client and investigating your client and maybe involved in prosecuting your client are making all the decisions about how you will do your job. Uh, and that's just a simple example of, of the impossibility of the situation sometimes. And uh, as I say, in the absence of any written codification of what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to do it, um, I, th I think these problems are just going to continue to arise. Shalom, Michael's mentioned some of the things like you're building a defence from, from the start um, and some of the issues that arise. Have you found that attending interviews, like, does it really matter? Is, is it an important thing? Oh, it, it absolutely does matter. And actually, when I started to attend post-2014, when the right was introduced, 
it immediately struck me how what a difference it makes. And, and, and I really was struck by how did people do this by themselves before? Because even now I'm doing them for, you know, uh, six years or so. It's really challenging. It, it, as a solicitor doing interview after interview, it's still really challenging to decide when to answer questions, when not to answer questions, how far to go with those answers. You know, it's very, very challenging. The very, sometimes very um, split decisions to make, very 50-50 calls to make. And it's, um, I don't know how people did them before on their own because the trial has, has, has moved back to the interview stage in, in, in many ways. You know, investigations are very complex now. There can be very detailed evidence put to a person. And they don't know in a lot of cases they're going to be arrested. They could be, you know, uh, questioned about very complex frauds. They could be pre um, presented with very complex details of forensic accounting and things of that nature, or a lot of CT CTV, forensics, etc. And they might have to um, deal with the, the question of an inference caution where their right to silence is, is, um, becomes more complex. So there are a lot of factors um, at play, and, and I think the presence of a, a solicitor properly trained and, and able to give good advice in that situation goes some way to creating some equality of arms and creating fair situation. If you think of it in this way, you know, the European courts have recognised that the trial starts really from the moment somebody becomes a suspect, but particularly when, when they're about to be interviewed. We would never contemplate having a situation where a person stands in court unrepresented, not in any circumstances. And yes, I think we've a long way to go to recognising that that same situation and maybe even more important to have a lawyer present in the guard station for, for, for a couple of reasons. One, there's no independent arbiter. There's no judge there to make sure the rules of engagement are fair. You're on the guard's turf, you're at their mercy, and even with a solicitor present, you feel that it's very, it's a very fraught situation in a lot of cases. So it's, it's, it's very important from that point of view. But also, in my experience, I've, I've advised a lot of people in guard stations who then are not charged. So they are able to rule themselves out at, of the investigation at that stage. But many of those people, I am absolutely sure, would have had to run the gambit of attending court and, and take the risk and have the unpredictability of a trial if they had not had a solicitor present. Because in many cases, for example, my clients wouldn't have been willing to give answers to questions. But I was able to advise them in that particular circumstance. I thought that they should answer questions and that it was to their benefit to answer questions and then they ended up not being charged and not having to run the risk of going through the trial process. So I think it's absolutely essential that um, solicitors are, are present and that those solicitors are well-trained, professional experts in that area. And like this isn't just about, I mean, like those are some striking examples, but it's not just about making sure innocent people aren't incorrectly charged or have their rights breached or anything. I mean, you know, even when we're talking about the conviction of the offender, the guilty person, you want to make sure interviews are being done correctly um, and so that the evidence that is extracted from those interviews can be used in court and relied upon and that things aren't getting ruled out later on. 
you're doing, as, as Shalom says, you know, actually, the, the solicitor is the only person in the room without any skin in the game. I mean, you're there as, a, as an independent person, simply advising uh, a client, uh, sometimes a little bit more extensively if the person is distressed or upset or, or, or finding it particularly uh, traumatic to be, to be in police custody. And, and, many, and, and some people do fall into that category. But a lot of the time, uh, I am finding that, first of all, I'm attending guard stations by arrangement. The guardian are inviting people in to do an interview at a particular time that suits them and to bring a solicitor if they wish. But in those circumstances, your, your role then changes a little bit uh, because what you want to do is make sure that the person, assuming they have something to say, uh, puts it across accurately uh, and, 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 and gives themselves... Uh, a, 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 an honest chance of explaining their point of view uh, and very often uh, when a criminal charge or the possibility of a criminal charge is being considered by a directing officer a solicitor prosecution solicitor in the office of the DPP the absence of any counterpoint or information from the person accused of the crime will determine uh, the issue uh, in, in favour of prosecution as opposed to demonstrating that there are two sides to a story and nowhere is this more prevalent than in the fraught area of sexual offences uh, the, the issue of consent is front and centre in, in, in current public debate and it's ex it doesn't get any easier once you start getting into the details of what happened and who said what and who believed whatever and who went where and, and all that kind of stuff and because it's very very nuanced and because it's very subjective it is crucial that a person accused of a sexual crime has an independent professional with them to say, okay, what are you thinking of saying? What happened? Uh, you know, are you sure that's accurate? Are you sure that's right? Before they put something down on the record. Because in the interview room, when you're being recorded, there's no take backs. Once you say it, that's the evidence. And it is well nigh impossible to wind back the clock and say well actually that's not really what I meant because in the criminal justice system that's often seen as being evasive and makes in the eyes of a lot of people makes a person look guilty so the independent professional actually performs a very important role from that point of view it makes what comes out of the interview reliable either reliable in favor of non-prosecution or equally important, reliable if it if it should proceed to a, a full court prosecution. And so there are proposals at present. So we have the Garda Síochána um, Police Powers Bill, um, which we got a general scheme of um, last year, and that does propose for the very first time putting the right of having a lawyer in the interview on a statutory basis. Um, so you would have a legal entitlement to have them there. We haven't actually heard too much about solicitors not being, you know, being denied access to interviews when they're wanted, when it is wanted. Um, but at the same time, the take-up rate is really, really low. Um, so it'll be interesting to see whether having it on a statutory um, basis makes a difference, I suppose. Um, Shlom, what do you make of the proposals as they stand? Well, I welcome the proposal 
uh, to allow a, a legal representative to accompany their their client into into the questioning and for that to be put on a statutory basis because I think that was needed the the current position as we've commented on is a little bit unusual and a little bit uncertain so I, I welcome that however the head of the bill as it's currently drafted certainly has a few worrying aspects to it and um, you know firstly within the same head that permits a solicitor to be present they have provided for an exclusion of the time between the person requesting a solicitor and when the solicitor concludes their consultation from the, from the time in which a person can be detained. Now, that's, that's a big change. So that could be a couple of hours from the time the person requests. To, then the guards have to actually make the call, make contact with the solicitor. The solicitor may have to rearrange some of their work and may need to travel you know, a fair distance to get to the station, then it can take a little bit of time before you actually get to see your client. You have to try and get disclosure from the guardee, which is one of the very contentious issues in, in advising. It's very difficult in some circumstances to get proper information from the guards about why they suspect your client, what, what evidence they have. And that's called disclosure, and it can be very difficult to obtain in a, in a thorough manner from the guardee. So all of that has to take place before you have a consultation with your client. Uh, and in some cases, your client may need to see a doctor before they see you. So then you get to see your client. And the reason I'm concerned about that is I think one of the reasons that people sometimes don't ask for a solicitor is because they're worried that it will mean they'll be longer in the guard station. And most people, when they're in that situation, they're really first priority is that they want to get out and sometimes they're not capable for whatever reason of thinking long term. That may be because of vulnerabilities like addiction or um, intellectual disabilities or mental health issues. But even the person without those particular vulnerabilities, they really just want to be out of there. So if they're being told, well, you can get a solicitor, but we're going to deduct that time from the um, or we're going to exclude that time from from our calculation of, of, of your detention period, which essentially means you're going to be here longer. I think it's going to have a very detrimental effect and I think it's going to have a chilling effect on people who may otherwise ask for legal access. And this also feeds into a concern I have in terms of waiving your right to a solicitor because that's provided for in this bill. But what's not provided for is that the person would be given um, really thorough information on the pros and cons of having a solicitor. And it's not provided for that that would be, that waiver would be in writing or on camera. And I personally would like to see where people waive a right for a solicitor to be present. I would like to know that that person really understands what benefit a solicitor being present could make. And if they're waiving it, I want to know that they have made a, an informed choice and that they've done so in a, in a, in a, free manner and that they're not doing so say just because it might take a little bit longer um, and in fact on that I mean really, yeah. sorry there was like research conduct published last year from Professor Kilkelly and Dr Louise Ford on children yeah. in police custody and they actually argued that it should not be possible for children to waive their right um, because, you know, obviously concerns around mental development uh, and that capacity to understand and ha be aware of those long term consequences. So there's even an argument that for some people they shouldn't be permitted to waive their right, that, 
you know, they just simply should have legal advice with them in the station. Absolutely. And, and that's, that research is, is really valuable research. And I think it has a lot of application to adults and particularly vulnerable adults uh, as well, not, not just children. But they saw the importance of having a, a legal advisor. And in the course of their research, there was an interesting um, aspect of it where some kids that they had interviewed didn't have solicitors and some did. But of the people that they interviewed who had had solicitors, every one of them seem to be really happy with that advice, really happy that they'd asked for it and felt a huge benefit of having that advice. Whereas some of the um, children that interviewed who'd been interviewed without a solicitor regretted not having a solicitor. So, um, you know, I, I think that that's an important aspect. And, and they said that they were reluctant in some ways to advocate for a, a mandatory system where children have to have a solicitor because in some ways, then you're overriding a person's choice. But they said, on balance, having done this research, that was their recommendation. So they had thought about that very carefully. And I mean, I'd, I absolutely advocate that in respect to children. But I, I do think there's an argument that it also should be looked at in terms of uh, particularly vulnerable yeah, um, adults. I've actually been thinking about this because obviously myself and Yvonne Daly are, are working on a book on this. And I think this whole premise, like it's so interesting that we come from it, that it's a right that maybe you could avail of. Like, why not just a presumption? Look, having the lawyer there in the interview, you know, offers protection, as Michael has explained. It, it You know, it validates whatever comes out of the interview for good, bad or ugly. Um, And, you know, they're an important player in all of this and they just should be there from the outset unless there's a really strong reason why the person doesn't want a lawyer in the room. It's I find it interesting how it, it, we're really coming at it, I think, from the other side and we're still of that mindset that it's something of an exceptional occurrence, um, I think, in terms of that. Sorry, that's just me going off my own little rant there. Um, <laughs> Michael- I think there's a good point, actually, Vicky, to be made that um, I think it's in London. Um, they started, they introduced a, 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 an exercise when a person is booked into a police station for detention, um, they ask them, do you want a solicitor? And if they say no, uh, then the next question is, can you please explain why? What, what is your reason for not wanting a yeah. solicitor? And even that small uh, mechanism of, of asking a person for the reason uh, and noting the reason uh, can be very important because everybody, every lawyer working in criminal defense has had the experience of uh, talking to a client who's been into the police station with no representation, then been charged or summonsed, gone and got representation. And when you ask them, why didn't you ask for a, a solicitor when you were in the Garda station? You're, you're, you hear the answer, oh, the guard said I wouldn't need one. Now, yeah. it's a big difference, a client saying that to a solicitor after the fact, to a person saying that maybe to a, a uniformed officer who again somebody with no skin in the game no interest in the outcome and is simply re- recording the replies given by the person in the police station um, and again it, it seems small but these small things do invest uh, a great deal of credibility and integrity in the investigation process and you know lest anyone who is listening to this think that it's all an exercise to sort of promote the bleeding heart liberalism I mean, let's not forget, the taxpayer is paying for all this. The taxpayer is paying for the criminal justice system. The taxpayer is paying for the police, the courts, the lawyers, all of that stuff. So at, at a very minimum, 
you should come out with a product at the end of it that, that is reliable. Uh, and to have evidence rejected as unreliable uh, for the want of simple, effective, uh, and very efficient, time-efficient safeguards, it seems to me just like a completely wrong way to go about it. Yeah. One of the other points with the current draft legislation, it goes back to a word you used it yourself, Michael, earlier. Um, the legislation talks about disruptive, unduly disruptive lawyers um, or solicitors and that they can be removed from the interview. Um, I'm really struck by this because I feel like there's an awful lot of information that's not in the legislation, such as what solicitors are entitled to do in the interviews, how long consultations can be for, you know, all of these details. And yet we do have a provision that allows guards to eject lawyers from an interview. Um, how are you feeling about that provision? What are your thoughts on it? I, I think it's, I mean, it, 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 it really strikes me as a kind of an, an indicator of the perspective of the drafters because there's a huge amount about lawyers becoming unduly disruptive. There's absolutely nothing about anybody else in the process being disruptive or unhelpful or anything like that, and certainly no mention of any sanctions, um, whereby if, for example, and it does happen, uh, a police officer is becoming unduly aggressive or inappropriately uh, forceful in the way they're interrogating a, a person or, or if you like moving from an interview to an interrogation um, that there is some kind of sanction that you can introduce and again I've had that experience sure Shalom has many colleagues I've simply you know simply just had to ask a police officer you look tone it down you know ask your question if you wish to ask a question but you know stop pointing your finger at my client stop shouting at him Stop being aggressive. It's not necessary and it's not appropriate. Um, the draft legislation doesn't even seem to contemplate that such a thing would occur. And yet, there is paragraph after paragraph about what will happen to a solicitor who becomes disruptive. And one then, I think, moves on to the, the, the point about, well, what do you consider disruptive? Because there are some police officers who consider, would you mind clarifying that, please, guard, as a disruptive intervention by a solicitor. Some guardy believe that any intervention at all by a solicitor is constitutes disruption. Um, and then if one moves to even the existing codes of practice, such as they are, uh, some guardy in the interview seem to feel that it is entirely their decision as to how long and when the solicitor will be ejected from the interview. And they're absolutely insulted to think that they may have to go and consult a senior officer uh, who will make that decision and not them. And this all feeds back into a notion that it's somehow uh, a conflict environment whereby, you know, whoever shouts the loudest wins. And, and that's not what this is supposed to be about. Um, maybe we will get to the point where after everyone gets very, very used to uh, interviews taking place with lawyers being present and asking pertinent questions designed to clarify issues uh, for the benefit of suspects, um, then codes of pra uh, binding codes of practice or statutory instruments won't be necessary. But for the moment, uh, I think clear written rules are necessary that everyone is expected to abide by. And that includes the police. Um, and 
the opportunity, because of the way this came about, I think an opportunity was lost to do this properly from the off. Everybody kind of developed their own way of doing things by osmosis. And what you then have is a complete inconsistency uh, in the way people approach things. Different guard stations will do things different ways. Different solicitors will do things different ways. And, you know, the one thing the criminal justice system really needs all the time in any sphere is consistency. Uh, because that way you can run it properly. You can advise people on what is likely to happen, which is important. And the outcomes, uh, again, will, will have some sort of reliability. Yeah, that's a really good point, Amanda, <clears throat> even those differences. Yeah, Shalom. Uh, well, the, uh, for me, this is the most worrying uh, part of the, of, the, of the bill. Now, there's lots of the concerns. I would have lots of concerns on the provisions of this bill. But this particular provision to remove a, a legal advisor for being unduly disruptive is really worrying. And, and, and you'd have to ask how it made its way into this bill. Mm. It's, you know, who, who thought this was a good idea? You already have somebody... In, if you think of the person who's in a station, so if the person who's arrested, they're, they've had so many of their rights taken away from them, they, the right to liberty, the right to free movement, the right to bodily integrity, they're in a horrible situation. They are a suspect usually of, you know, a fairly serious crime and, and they're in the guard station and then they have a right of access to a lawyer. And is that now going to be at the mercy of, of, um, of, of the guards to decide whether they get that right? And, and, and what's important about that as well is that the person should have a choice of their own solicitor. So, and that's, that's really ambiguous in this, um, in this bill, whether, whether the, um, legislature are going to pro- provide for a choice of solicitor. But just on this point about being removed for being unduly re- disruptive, I just want to give an example of of what to date has been seen as unduly disruptive. I have been threatened with remo- removal from interview rooms on many occasions. And I can honestly say I don't think I've ever done anything that would justify that. But I'll give you an example once where at the very beginning of an interview, I said, just out of courtesy, I'm going to let you know that my client will be exercising his right to silence. And at that point, I was told I would be removed from the interview. So I cannot see how giving the guards unfettered discretion to remove a solicitor for an undefined uh, offence of being unduly disruptive is in any way justified. We have never heard anything that would justify this provision. There's no reason for it to be there. If the guards have a problem with an individual solicitor who is who is maybe doing something that they think is beyond their role, they have the option to make a complaint to the Law Society of Ireland. They have never done that to my knowledge. And they have been invited to do that when they have raised this as, as uh, an issue. And when they've been asked for specific examples by the um, Law Society, and when they've been asked to follow it up with complaints, as far as I know, they have never done that. And I think it's really important. It is in the UK guide that that if they are going to remove a solicitor, they have to also make a complaint to the regulatory body. And I think that's a really important safeguard in a way because it means they have to follow up. They have to have a, a, a complaint that they need to put some 
flesh on the bones of. They just can't in the moment say, right, that's it, out and, and leave a person without the solicitor of their choice. But as I said, a person who's all, already had many of their rights removed from them for that, for that moment. I mean, it's an interesting point there in terms of comparing that to the UK, because, of course, in the UK as well, you do have a situation where any lawyer or legal advisor attending has been kind of certified for that. So they've undergone, you know, quite detailed training to get to that point and are considered qualified to to attend in stations. Um, we don't have that situation in Ireland. Should we mo- be moving towards something like that? I think it will be very, very helpful. Um for a number of reasons, not least that the people attending the Garda station um, would understand and be confident uh, in their ability to represent people because it's a very, very different dynamic and a very, very different situation you find yourself in from anything else you do as a lawyer uh, when you're in a Garda station. Um, first of all, you're isolated. Uh, I mean, we think of we think of arrested people as being isolated when they're in the police station, but so is the lawyer. And the the profession is the profession functions an awful lot on collegiality. And we all have friends and we all have uh, colleagues that we would phone uh, or speak to uh, if we wanted to bounce an idea off them or 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 ask for information about something that we're that we're not familiar with. You can't do that. Uh, when you're in a police station advising a client. Um, and it, it, it does feel very isolating sometimes. Um, add into that uh, maybe the behaviour of an unacceptably aggressive police officer, and yes, they do exist, uh, then your working environment becomes even more fraught and you're trying to make difficult decisions and exercise very fine judgments uh, under huge pressure, uh, and sometimes you literally are in a you know ten by twelve room uh, with uh, a person in a police uniform shouting at your client and pointing the finger at them and telling them about all the things that is going to happen to them if they don't start talking. Um, if you are trained to expect that sort of thing. In exactly the same way as they train lifeguards to understand the effects of cold water shock, then the numbing effect that you feel when you come across that for the first time is lessened by your training. And then experience supplements training and makes the lawyer effective, even though they're functioning under difficult conditions. Um, So that's a long-winded way of saying absolutely. And I would go further. I would say that... No solicitor should be permitted to go into a guard station without doing uh, a, a training course uh, in how to represent people uh, in the guard station while they are detained um, and understand what they need to know in terms of codes of practice and, and uh, statutory instruments so that they're, they're equipped uh, to do the job properly. I mean, without it, it's, it's not fair on the lawyer. It's not fair on the suspect. And it, I mean, it could often be the case that you're even wasting the police time. Um, and sometimes, I mean, leaving aside the professional disagreements or whatever, I mean, sometimes what the police are doing uh, is extremely important. I mean, certain high profile cases in the news at the moment. Could you imagine being the lawyer in there and maybe messing it up? 
you'd you'd never get over that. So the training has all sorts of all sorts of benefits, and really we should be at the point we wouldn't let in, we should be at the point where we should be training people to do this and not letting them do it until they they have that competence. You wouldn't get it in any other area of law. Nobody would attempt a conveyance who had never studied property law. Uh, but yet, there seems to be this acquiescence uh, when it comes to representing people in police stations sometimes that, you know, basically, uh, you know, all you need is a certificate on the wall uh, and Google Maps to get you to the Garda station. And after that, you're fine. It, it's not. It isn't easy. Not everybody can do it. And it does require specialist training, in my opinion. And that training would buttress as well against those kind of concerns that the police might have or any kind of, you know, because if you know that the people coming in are qualified, it's much harder to um, yeah, challenge their behavior in that way. Or at least you have a standard to challenge against because um, you can say, well, this yeah. is how you're supposed to be engaging. And indeed, there's no reason why it couldn't be joint training mm. so that both both agencies, both organizations can understand a little bit more about what each one of them is doing um, and, and you know if, if you can at least reduce the amount of suspicion that exists then you know you might avoid some of the problems that people are facing at the moment um, we've we've covered quite a bit of ground Shalom do you have any other comments on on the bill and the proposals that you'd like to make well just one one uh, final comment made on the bill and the proposal in particular in relation to the power to remove a legal advisor. I just, again, going back to my own personal experience, that I find that that provision, I think it will have a really chilling effect on lawyers and maybe particularly on untrained lawyers, perhaps. But when you're in that interview room, and I've had this experience where you're being repeatedly threatened with removal, it really makes you think twice about an intervention. So, Solicitors can intervene in certain circumstances to clarify a question if the, if the question has been, you know, asked in an improper way or the question itself is, is, is an improper question. So there are a few circumstances where, where a solicitor is permitted to intervene and they're allowed to give continuous advice to intervene for that purpose or to advise their client to remain silent. So I've had the experience where I'm being continually threatened with removal and I'm trying to intervene where I think I should. And sometimes I've had to think twice about that because I'm wondering mm. if I intervene again, am I going to actually be removed? And is my client then going to be left without any legal advice? So this provision, it, it affects the suspect and their right to a fair trial by potentially having their lawyer of choice removed at, at, at the say-so of, of the guardie, but it also has a chilling effect on the person giving it legal advice. And that's going to be a very difficult thing to in measure in any way, because you're not going to see that in the trial process. Did the solicitor not intervene because they were, you know, maybe afraid to, and, and, and maybe not afraid for themselves, but afraid for their client. Oh God, if I intervene now, my client's going to be left on their own. And just to say, like, you have a split second to make those decisions. Yeah. The guard asks the question, and you have to intervene before your client starts to answer. So you really have a split second. And when you've got an additional thing to consider now, oh, my God, am I going to be removed if I, if I make this point? It's, it's just going to make it what's already a very difficult job even more difficult. 
And because I'm thinking like, even if, you know, you want to, so the guards say they're, they're kicking you out of the interview. Um, if a lawyer wants to challenge that, you know, um, I assume you could judicially review that at the courts, but like an interview could take place before that can happen at which, you know, something quite determinative, you know, where they really needed their lawyer to be in the room. Well, judicial you know, review in, in theory, and court remedies are tricky, though. Yeah. Just, sorry. Um, just I've tried it. Uh, I don't know if Shalom may have done it as well. It's yeah, very tricky. Just going to say, and there's a, you, you, there's a big culture in the uh, at the superior court level that issues in detention uh, should be addressed at trial if there is a trial and uh, I mean it, it it cures nothing um and it, it, the damage the damage is very much done yeah um and it's it's it, 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 even sometimes with the most open-minded of judges at superior court level the Irish system is too unfamiliar with the dynamics of detention at the moment um, and the nuances of what goes on in a police interrogation to really appreciate why judicial intervention during uh, a court detention or during a, a police detention is necessary by the court, short of overt allegations of physical ill treatment, um, lack of information, uh, insufficient provision for legal aid, um, uh, withholding material facts from uh the suspect or his legal advisor all of those are dismissed as issues for a trial if and when one happens and i think it's the wrong way to go myself other jurisdictions have got past that obstacle very very quickly and uh we still haven't i was actually looking at the figures on that recently and i think was it for 2019 were the most recent ones less than 5% of cases actually went to a trial. So 95% of that time, the time there isn't that opportunity for a judge to review those things at a later point. Um, so that, you know, as you say, the damage can be done. Um, any final comments from either of you in relation to this? I, I suspect we could all talk about it forever, but I'm not your listeners want to hear, the, <laughs> hear two hours on this. No, I think we've, we've done well. We've covered the main points, you know, but I mean, it really just comes back to these are fair trial rights. We have to see what happens in the Garda station as part of the trial process and, and everything has to be done to ensure that that is fair and robust. And you can't have a safe conviction unless you have strong defence and that starts at the Garda station, in my view. Michael? Um, I mean, I, I've said this before, you know, this this whole process of, of arrest, interview, uh, you know, police investigation, it's part of a criminal justice system. And, you know, everybody seems to talk an awful lot about what constitutes criminal. Uh, and people will go on and on about what constitutes justice. But the aspect of the phrase that's often neglected is system. And the thing is, if you view uh, the arrest an interview of a person dispassionately as part of a, a, a system of investigation and perhaps ultimately prosecution, well, then you start to be able to work out methods of doing it effectively and efficiently. And if you, I think if you approach it that way, and, and the Irish system is not doing that yet, but if it gets to the point where it's looked at upon as part of a system that it is important to do correctly so that it doesn't affect any other parts of the system, 
we'll then I think we'll see real improvements. But we're not there yet. Mm. A long way to go. Um, okay, thank you so much, uh, Michael and Sloan, for joining me today. Um, this legislation went through what's called pre-legislative scrutiny before Christmas. So we're expecting the actual detailed full bill as the next step and that proper um, legislative process will begin. So we'll be keeping a really close eye on the wording wording of that bill. There's a lot more that we'll cover on, in other episodes of The Beat. Um, but we also, you know, if you're concerned about any of this, do, of course, contact your TDs on the issue. Um, thanks very much for listening to Police The Beat. If you're listening, you already support us, but do spread the word. Encourage others to engage with this work by subscribing at patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack.